Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's BudSmart Roundtable Series webinar. My name is Ashley Robinson, and I'm the editor of BudSmart. Today, I'll be serving as your host for this webinar. Today's theme is the potato seed certification process. And first off, I'd just like to take a quick minute to thank BASF and McCain for partnering with us on this Roundtable Series webinar. Today's speakers are uh, Christopher Dunbar, who is a potato program specialist with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, and Jake Hoagland, who is a seed potato grower with Hoagland Farms in Millet, Alberta. Thank you both for taking part today. And our agenda for today's webinar will be that first off, you're going to learn some stuff about the tests that seed potatoes are required to go through here in Canada, including handling standards seed growers must follow and how long seed production takes. During the presentation, you'll likely have some questions for our speakers. Please type these into the chat box at any time during the webinar, and we'll address them during the question and answer session after the presentations. Today's webinar is being recorded and will be made available at spudsmart.com following this live event. Our first presenter is Christopher Dunbar, who is a potato program specialist with CFIA. Christopher has worked in the potato industry for over 25 years. He attended the Nova Scotia Agricultural College and then received a Master of Science degree from Dalhousie University, University in 1997 where he studied potato tuber formation. Following university, he worked for 13 years as a manager on a farm, which produced high generation seed potatoes for the PEI Potato Board. After a two-year stint as an agronomist and researcher at Food Trust of PEI, Christopher joined the CFIA in 2007 as an inspector. He then worked his way up to his current program, his current position as program and policy development in plant health, where he handles quarantine pests for potatoes. Christopher spends his spare time on the river with his spouse and kids and working in his greenhouse and orchard. He also writes a monthly column on gardening for a local PEI food magazine. Take it away, please, Christopher. Um, thank you, Ashley. Uh, yeah, I've got a few slides here on uh, on the seed potato uh, program uh, for CFIA. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'll start with uh, just a little bit about what the CFIA uh, uh, does we're the regulator in Canada and what we're concerned about is uh, Canada's food supply so and of course the the food supply is also is dependent upon plant and animals so we're involved of course in how those are produced as well because that's what the, the food comes from uh, so there's eight, 185 field offices across Canada so we do have a, a fairly a fair well a broad uh, a broad presence for sure. So the the seed potato certification program we administer that under the authority of the Seeds Act and Seeds Regulations. It's been around for for a long time. Uh, it actually started in 1914. Uh, it's a nationally administered program. It's the same across the country, and there's standards regarding purity, tuber size, slot integrity, packaging container identification, and, and of course, pests and diseases. That's probably the, the most important thing. So yeah, why do we have a certification program? Uh, the, the biggest part is in food security because um, the most important, um, in order to maintain, have a productive crop, you need control diseases. So 
Uh, in particular, there was one that was, was quite bad in the 60s, bacterial ring rot. It, the, the certification system is in place to try and control those diseases. And, and ring rot, fortunately, as, as an example, is quite rare now. So uh, it, it works. It's also a, an important uh, driver, uh, domestic trade and, and export verification. There needs to be some oversight in, um, in maintaining a certain level of disease in, in a, a certain level of quality in the, in the seed stocks minimizing disease so um, it facilitates trade and that there's standards that need to be met. Um, also, of course, plant protects the plant resource base. Uh, Post-entry quarantine is another aspect. It's, it's actually not directly related to or not direct part of the seed certification program, but it's the precursor. So if there's um, potato material coming from overseas, it must go through that, that program. So uh, there's a continuum of activities before the seed gets to your farm and after, after it leaves. It's not just there's a few things, that it, there's, there's, it's, it's really a, a, a constant, um, constant step. So there, there's seven field generations in our, uh, the seed potato system. And the way it, the, the way it works is that there, essentially zero disease material comes in at the start. It's grown in the greenhouse and tissue culture. And there's a certain number of generations that that material is propagated and uh, increased in volume. And at the end, they, it, uh, it exits the system. Potatoes are vegetatively propagated. So um, if, they get, if plants get diseased, they're gonna stay diseased until, so, so you have a constant, uh, it's, each year in the field, you get more disease. So that's why we want to minimize or limit the number of years it's in the system. I would also add that each year there's, excuse me, each class there's standards. And if, uh, if a, a seed lot, say it's in the elite one and does not meet the elite one standards, it's down class to the, the standards that it does meet. So uh, seven field generations is the maximum. So the activities, there's a number of key activities. The, the, the first step is the grower applies for crop inspection and they would provide uh, some documentation. There's, a, there's actually a, um, uh, an application form that they would need to provide and there needs to be some uh, laboratory testing. So that's kind of the, the first step in, in the season. Uh, during the summer, um, at least two times, usually July and August, uh, there'll be two inspections, um, and this is in the field, two, a minimum of two inspections. The, the seeds, regs, part two indicate a minimum of two, so that there could be more. In addition to those two field inspections, there's um, harvest or storage inspections, and the, the primary purpose of those is verification of lot integrity, where are the, where are the different um, lots stored. And we also do some tuber inspections uh, at the shipping point related to issuance of tags and, and movement certificate to, and to verify the grade. So we control the, the movement. If, if things aren't up to up to grade, then we don't issue the uh, the document, the tag or the, the movement certificate. 
So in order to be eligible in order for CFI to accept your application, you need to provide some, some documents. Uh, for each lot that was grown on the farm, it needs to have uh, VRR testing. Um, even if there's no if there's no seed brought into the farm or there's or or sold from the farm, there still needs to be a minimum of two lots tested for bacterial ring rot. Um, yeah, and all purchased seed must also be tested. If there's uh, a new grower before they even um, get seed on their farm, a, a new grower would be required to do a full cleanup under CFIA um, supervision because. Um, BRR is, is endemic to Canada, so we want to make sure before you bring in something to enter the seed system, the farm is cleaned up. And it's important also that all potato crops are listed on the application because you cannot grow anything, you cannot plant anything lower than foundation class. A couple of slides on uh, just on nuclear stock production. This shows uh, on, the, on the left is some uh, some potato plants that are grown in the in the lab. That's essentially the starting point um, in the system. There's zero disease. Uh, on the, the side on the right or the picture on the right shows those plants being planted in um, a nuclear greenhouse. It's also a protected environment. So those will grow for a season and, and they'll be harvested as, as mini tubers. And that's those mini tubers then go to the field the next year. But both of these are considered uh, nuclear stock class. Couple of this shows the, some of the biosecurity uh, um, elements for the for nuclear stock production. Uh, it needs to be an, an insect-proof uh, environment. So there's there there's an inspection and and uh, the the, the greenhouse has to be free from uh, not allow insects present, so they need to monitor for that. They have, have screened in uh, double entry door, and of course, footwear needs to be disinfected. That needs to be disinfected before anyone enters the facility. Uh, these are the, 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 the viruses that um, the nuclear stock material is tested for. There's eight of them there. There's there's a there's a number of requirements that are that are met and as Jake will get into a little bit there's a whole there's a whole set of work regarding nuclear stock production so but essentially when you're starting you have to have tests for for a number of diseases and it has to be disease free essentially then into crop inspection. Uh, there, there is lab tests that's that's part of some uh, part of the business, of course. But at at, at at current, it's all visual inspection. So we go in and we look at a certain number of plants, and there's uh, looking for uh, various um, black leg uh, viruses, foreign. There's a certain there's certain diseases and 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 defects that we're looking for. So we'll do an inspection and then. 20 to 30 days later to another inspection. Um, and of course, in between fields and farms, we, we, we follow um, good sanitation pro uh, program. Yeah, my, so biosecurity uh, at the farm, you want to prevent certainly soil. You, want, you, you, you don't want to carry from a disease or anything from one um, 
one farm or one field to another. So it's important to, to follow, uh, use good biosecurity, which of course all seed farms um, do. So uh, it's certainly an important principle because you, you don't want to bring, if there's, if, there's, if there's no disease there and uh, it, it can be brought in by humans and, or, or equipment, you want to prevent that. Um, crop inspection will be refused if, if, so if you plant anything that's certified or non-seed on your farm, we will uh, not, uh, not accept your application. Uh, or if there's uh, potatoes planted uh, within two years of where BRR occurred. So it's certainly important that uh, the bacteria and rot, um, that there's freedom from that. So neither, there's a two year requirement. Uh, and of course you can't have had any quarantine pests that's been detected. Uh, if there's inadequate separation, you make sure you separate um, your, your um, your non-seed and your seed. I would say you, you can grow non-seed on a seed farm as long as you plant um, seed. You don't have to enter it for certification, but it has to be eligible to be entered if you wanted to. Uh, crop damage, which impedes visual inspection. If there was if there was damage, Colorado damage or, or, or other damage, we have to be able to inspect the crop so if we can't uh, inspect the crop then of course we can't certify and if there's any uh, equipment exposed to bacterial ring rot or quarantine pests that would be uh, grounds for refusing crop inspection this chart just shows a little bit of the different standards for uh, uh, the top row there nuclear prelate th those are the different classes and and uh, the vertical column there on the, the left that shows what the the different diseases are and what the tolerances are and as you see as you move to the right of the table you get lower class the tolerance is is higher um, the seed potato certification number this is a key part of the part of the system because it's all about traceability and each and every crop in canada every year in, in seed potatoes is has a unique number and the numbers the, the numbers each part of the number means something so the first four digits are the crop year then the next digit is the the province that it comes from the next two digits are the district within the province this four digit number here is the grower number and 06006 in this case is the field or the lot number on the farm unit. So it's there's a lot of information that's gained from this certification program or this certification number. And it's it's very important to have it. And just I'll show you, for example, this is just a, a fictitious example, but if, if you look at, we, we track each number, the certification uh, each year of, of each, lot. So here you can find out if there was a problem, let's say in you've got foundation seed here, you can look to where it was grown the previous year, two previous years, three, four, and so on, all the way up to the top. And the, if you find out where the, where the problem is, you can, you, you, it, it helps to, to, to control where, where the issue might be. Like if we have a disease outbreak, 
we go back and we look, okay, who planted a, who who planted that specific certification number and check that to see if it's just related to seed or is it farm related and so on. So it's it's a really uh, important part of the traceability part of uh, seed certification. Um, and yeah, and just before shipping point, there is uh, there's inspections for domestic and export. I would say the the domestic um, inspections are more for more to verify. They're not a mandatory inspection. Um, however, for export, it is mandatory. So um, and they need to meet the is it the the lot needs to meet the inspection um, grade standard. uh again here this is the this is the standard um for tuber inspection earlier i talked about standards that was for field inspection so there's there's oversight in the field and then there's oversight uh at the shipping point so and there's tolerances that at all of those Oh uh, yeah, and just a quick note: uh, the sea potato inspectors. There's a there's a school in Ontario, and so they're trapped on, uh, trained on a national basis. There's also regional training, but uh, having the national training helps in in consistency, and they're trained in regulated pests and quarantine pests. Um, there's uh, zero tolerance for bacterial ring rot, and we we uh, not every year, but often there is investigations in, in ring rot and we would do trace investigations and testing to determine where did the where did the infection come from is it on farm or is it from a, another farm um, and if there is a find then uh, there needs to be cleaning and disinfection under our supervision under inspector and uh, restrictions on land use this is just a quick uh, picture of some of the, the, the documents that we issue to allow movement. On the left is the different types of seed potato tags. They're not used so much now, maybe still in nuclear stock production, but not for the others, not, not that much. But uh, what's more typical is a bulk movement certificate when everything goes is in a, in a truckload. Uh, see potato hectares probably promised that this is just a, a little bit on how much production we have per year. It, it, it varies around 22,000 hectares. That's the five-year average there, 21,954. And uh, well, just about every province. And Nova Scotia is a, a little small, but certainly there, there's a lot of seed potato production uh, across the country every year. That's, that's 22,000 hectares that have to be inspected placed during the growing season. Yeah, and I guess that's uh, that's the end of my uh, presentation. Over to you, Jake, I guess, or Ashley. <laughs> Thanks so much, Christopher. You did a great job. So please remember, if anyone wants to ask any questions to Christopher or to Jake coming up, make sure to type them into the chat box, and we will answer those in the question and answer session after Jake's presentation. Our next presenter is Jake Hopeland, who is a seed potato grower at Hopeland Farms in Alberta. Hopeland Farms is a family farm with Jake and his father working together. They grow up 380 acres of seed potatoes and a small amount of grain. The Hopelands grow approximately 30 varieties and 90 lots of potatoes, from the mini tuber stage to shipping E1, E2, or E3. The Hopelands have been growing potatoes near Millet since 1998. Before that, they grew seed potatoes 
potatoes in the Netherlands for over 40 years. Jake moved to Canada in 1996, where he first worked on a seed potato farm near Edmonton. And he's the chairman of the Edmonton Potato Growers and a longtime board member of the Seed Potato Committee for the Potato Growers of Alberta. He's married with one child and enjoys farming and cart racing. Take it away, please, Jake. Thank you, Ashley. As uh, Ashley said, I'm, uh, I'm Jake Oakland, a farm in, uh, in Alberta. Um, we are quite specialized in our uh, higher, higher, higher generation uh, seed potatoes. Um, so basically follows up to what, uh, what Chris is, uh, was saying that uh, all the regulations we have to go through. Um, just doing a little brief uh, presentation on what, uh, what our farm is, uh, is about and what we do. Uh, so we grow about 380 acres of, of potatoes. Uh, from uh, three lead class to E3 class, actually. Uh, our greenhouses uh, are done by my sister, which is a quarter mile up the road. They, um, they produce the mini tubers for us. Uh, we plant about 120,000 mini tubers per year uh, to do our full crop. Um, we do we're quite specialized in the higher generation, so uh, we also have a lot of varieties. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you that are on right now are like, holy crap, that's a, that's a lot, and it is. Uh, we grow 30 varieties and over 90 lots. So um, we do have some main varieties uh, that we use is, is uh, Satina, Gold Rush, Ivory Russet, Columba, and then we got some... Um, some smaller varieties like Elmo Orchestra, Mozart, Fabla, uh, all those varieties mainly come from European breeding companies. I every year go to uh, to the Netherlands where the European breeding companies have the presentation of the new varieties. That's uh, for us an, uh, a way to go and check what's coming up. Um, not every variety works in every area. Takes a long time to bring a variety in. Uh, for people that don't know, on average, it will take about three years to bring a variety over from Holland and um, have it gone to quarantine. Uh, by the time it's in our greenhouse and by the time we have a mini tuber, it's mostly about three years. So it's a long process. Um, we always really try to find something that, of course, fits in our market here in North America. Having said that, every area is different too. Um, if you're in PI or Vancouver Island or California, Florida, you name it, every variety performs differently under different conditions. It's one of the reasons why we have so many varieties and we're always trying something new. All our potatoes are being sold by Edmonton Potato Growers and HFTC Americas, which is located in uh, PEI and Edmonton Potato Growers here in Edmonton. Um, so yeah, like I said, I've visited a lot of companies to come up with newer varieties to bring into North America. What we look for a lot is, is, is uh, of course, shape. Yield is a big deal, of course. And uh, I think the bigger issue coming up more is uh, disease resistance. Uh, I think in Europe they're a little bit ahead with some of the uh, resistances in diseases, especially in nematodes. 
Not that we have any problems here, uh, at least not for sure, not in, in Canada much of, of nematode issues, but I do think in the US at certain places, it, it's becoming more and more an issue, especially when rotations are very tight. Um, so in the spring, um, like I said, my sister and brother-in-law, they're the producing our mini tubers. They have their own facility. Everything is done completely separately from our farm. Uh, they um, they do um, have their own cooler where they store the potatoes in. They got three greenhouses where they grow two crops per season. Uh, the first crop usually goes in in um, March, the end of March, and harvested by the end of June. Then harvest plant the second crop in the beginning of July, uh, harvesting in October. Uh, they have to have a really good cooler uh, as the first crop being harvested at the end of June. We plant mini tubers in the beginning of June. So it's um, almost a year of storage and that actually has been gone very well, but can be dependent on variety. Certain varieties do not like to be stored 11 months. Um, they don't grow very good. We had to learn that the hard way once. Um, Big challenge for us as seed grower is in, in, in December, we start planning uh, for greenhouses. We have to order our plants in December. So um, having said that, the tricky part would be that it's we have to guess the market, what it'll be in five years from there. Uh, it'll take five years between a, a greenhouse crop and a commercial crop. So we have to estimate what is a what are the processors and what are the, the, the fresh producers want in five years from now. That's the amount of uh, plants that we put in our greenhouse. So that, that can be very tricky. Um, what we usually do, we usually keep um, be a little bit on the high side. And if needed, we'll sell some higher generation uh, into a commercial crop. Um, so we will, of course, won't get paid for that necessarily, but um, at least we'll have enough to um, to supply our customers. Another tricky part to figure out how much seed we would need to plant in the greenhouse is really um, the difference in varieties is, is huge. And it takes a few years to figure that out. Um, as, as you can see in the presentation here, we have varieties that, that, that would yield about 85 pounds of E2 seed per mini tuber. Um, but also varieties that only yield 32 pounds per mini tuber as an E2. So it takes a few years to figure that out. And that's a big challenge to uh, come up with the number that we put uh, in the greenhouse. Uh, here you can see uh, my sister's greenhouse. Uh, they uh, plant everything in uh, two by four trays, uh, plastic trays off the ground, uh, especially for the first crop as it can be still pretty cold. We are in Alberta, so it can be pretty cold in March. Um, we use drip line uh, watering for uh, an even distribution of water in the greenhouse and not giving the water on top of the plants. Uh, on the right side there, you can see uh, some of the mini tubers that we plant. Uh, all our mini tubers are being done by piece. Um, lots of places they're trying to sell mini tubers per pound. 
to me, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Sometimes uh, there's only 22% uh, a pound, and sometimes we have 52% a pound. So it makes it very hard for us as seed grower to estimate how many um, E3 seed we're going to be producing out of those mini tubers. Um, so planting, our, um, we plant um, since three years now our mini tubers on beds. They are five foot beds with three rows in each bed. Uh, our main reason why we're planting our mini tubers in beds now is pure. Um, it, we get a more even size profile coming out of uh, the mini tubers. Uh, there's always a pretty various amount of sizes in the mini tubers. You have mini tubers that may be only one centimeter diameter and some of them three. Um, so we plant the little ones in the middle row so that they basically kind of get suffocated a little bit by the bigger plants. That way they don't uh, produce uh, really big tubers because one small one usually only produces one or two new tubers and they usually get really big. Uh, so far in the past three years, we've been very successful in, in, in getting a fairly even size out of it, which in my opinion moves on to other generations uh, to get an even size. Uh, another plan for us with the beds is um, putting drip tape irrigation in there uh, for the near future. Right now, we just irrigate by gun on our mini tubers. And that's pretty much the only irrigation we do. We're all on dry land here. Um, we do have high organic matter soil, so it holds our, our moisture really well. But um, we can do a little bit of other irrigation, but only out of a few little dugouts, and that's about it. So it's mainly dry land. Um, to give an example on our mini tuber field, uh, because of the regulations of CFAA, we have to keep a buffer uh, in between varieties. Um, that way we use about 80, 80 acres of land and only plant about four and a half acres of potatoes. So it's a lot of wasted land. Um, personal opinion on that for me is that, that I don't think it's necessary, uh, depending on what kind of harvest equipment you use. But um, that's something uh, that uh, Chris and I can discuss maybe one day. Anyway, um, our main crop, we plant everything whole on our farm. There is no cutting. Uh, we plant everything with a four-row structural planter, which is capable of planting uh, between two and 10 ounce tubers, even a 12 ounce tuber in there is no problem. Um, reason why we plant whole is just pure for disease spreading. Uh, I think it's the, the, the cleanest way of, uh, of growing seed. And I think it's for seed the only way um, to keep it from disease. Our row spacing here is 36 inch rows and our plant spacing is anywhere between seven and a half and nine inches depending on the size profile of the seed and of course varieties. Uh, some varieties will set uh, 15 tubers and some only 10 so we change our spacing because of that. Uh, because of whole planting we are planting quite a bit of tons per acre. We're about 4400 weight on average but if the seed is a little bit bigger, it's right away 5,500 weights per acre. Just a little uh, overview of our planting. 
we uh, on the left we uh, planned our whole seat with that structural planter. Um, we add um, liquid nitrogen in with planting, uh, fungicides and insecticides, and uh, we plant directly into hills. Uh, we use a power hill to get the land ready. All our land is mostly plowed in the fall, and only power hill in the spring and plant. On the right side, you can see our uh, planting uh, with the three rows in a bed of, uh, of the mini tubers. So in the summer after uh, after planting, we power hill our, our whole crop and we bed shape our mini tubers again. Uh, it's mainly for weed control, but also to get a bigger hill to protect us from frost. And uh, some of the varieties set very happy, so we need to need a pretty good bit hill to keep them uh, keep them in there. Of course, then it's our uh, the summer is our herbicide and fungicide and insecticide sprays. Uh, everything is done uh, foliar sprays. We use uh, tram lines in our uh, in our crop. Uh, this way, we do the least amount of damage uh, to our potato plants. And we can get in when we have to get in. There are times that uh, that it gets a bit wet, and uh, if we don't have the tram lines, we would do a lot of damage to the crop. We can use plane or helicopter here, which I had to use last year because it was really even too wet for for tram lines. But this way, we can use big tires and um, able to go in when it's um, a little on the damp side and make a good plan of spraying. We're pretty fortunate in Alberta. We got we got very low numbers of, of aphids. Um, late blight is not really a big issue either. So uh, our spraying intervals are, are quite lengthy. So we don't uh, don't have to get in too often. But um, it uh, we still got to stay on top of it. Uh, some people might think with your tram lines you'll lose a lot of land. Yeah, we are. We lose uh, about 5% with tram lines. But the rows on either side of the tram lines are also yielding quite a bit better than any of the other rows. So I personally only think it's about 2% loss that we have that way. And uh, with harvest, we don't have any issues with lumps because of sprayer tracks um, as we use the tram lines. In the summer, of course, we uh, we check uh, often monitor for aphids. Every week we have sticky cards that we send in that get checked what kind of aphids are around. Uh, I think for us, for seed growers, that's one of our biggest um, challenges, keeping the aphids out of it. Um, lucky in Alberta, our aphids don't show up usually until late July and August. So uh, we don't have to spray too often for it. Also, uh, roguing in the summer um, falls back to what Chris saying. We get two field inspections by CFAA. So we uh, try to go through our crop before the first inspection and have everything rogued, uh, pulled out anything that we think is not right. And um, then we do that again before the second inspection. We do focus a lot of, on, our, on our high generation seed so that it's easier to rogue uh, later on when it's a lower generation and more acres. So here just see on the left the, the hilling of the of the crop and uh, usually actually only about four days later they'll start uh, start popping out. Uh, as you can see on the right that I would say is about 
a good 10 days after healing is uh, what it'll uh, what it'll look like um little uh, aerial example of our fields as you can see uh a lot of different varieties there a lot of different plots uh, on the left picture there is uh there's our mini tuber field uh from a few years ago when we didn't do beds yet but uh, you can see all the buffers in between um, we try to keep those uh clean and weed free i do know in some areas they're seeding those to have a complete green area I'd love to do that part, but the wheat, the weeds present here in Alberta is very high with our high organic matter. So it's pretty tough to keep the weeds out of it that way too. So we decide to keep it black as most of our people here in Alberta do. Also on the right picture, you can see all our different plots. One of the drawings that we have to send to CFAA to, uh, show them where all the fields is so for inspection it's uh, it's easier for them to find it so in the fall we uh, top kill all our potatoes uh, at least three weeks uh, before our harvest uh, we like skin set um, some varieties i think you can get away with not getting necessarily a skin set but um, i preferably have full skin set before harvest we want to be done harvest by October 1st, as our risk is just getting too high here with frost. So we top kill based on size, but if it's get a little bit tight for timing, we top kill by time. And we just got to be done at a certain point. Uh, we top kill them by a foliar top kill spray, or uh, we shred and spray in one pass. It usually gets us a little bit quicker kill. But if we get frost uh, early in the season, having the whole top still on it uh, definitely saves us from two or three degrees of frost. We usually have to go about two, two to four times to get a good kill, depending on variety um, and year. Uh, if we have a lot of moisture, then sometimes the plants are a little bit too green yet with killing and we need an extra shot. And varieties is really big difference too. We harvest our main crop with a four-row self-propelled harvester. It has a bunker on it, which really works really good for us with some of the small plots. Um, and our fields are not all square and perfect either. Uh, some some areas have very short short rows. This way, we can hold uh, hold about seven or eight ton in our harvester, and um, makes the harvest go a whole lot quicker. We use a complete separate harvester for our mini tuber crop or our pre-leaf crop, I should say. Uh, we use a two-row Grammy machine uh, for that, that we transformed into be able to dig the beds. During harvest, we uh, sample our potatoes for BRR testing. Um, everything that leaves our farm is BRR tested. Uh, E1 class, you don't have to. But uh, I think for our own benefit and security, we, uh, we test every lot that leaves our farm. We use a post-harvest test, um, mainly Hawaii, if we can. Uh, unfortunately, because of COVID, we couldn't last year, but uh, hope to be back in Hawaii uh, right away. And um, we do a lot of lab testing too. Uh, I prefer both. It becomes a little bit costly. 
but I think a grow out gives you a really good indication of diseases where you're not necessarily be testing for in a lab. In a lab, it's only going to get tested for what you ask it to be tested for. In a visual, uh, you might see something that is a little unusual and then you can start testing for things and, and uh, know what's going on in your seed lots. We got um, three storages uh, on our farm. Uh, we store 75% uh, of our lots in boxes. Each box holds about 3,300 pounds. Um, because of all the lots, it's pretty much the only way to do it. And we have one, uh, one uh, bulk storage where we store big varieties in. Um, one big disadvantage of a box storage is, is that the box storage is never empty. Uh, the boxes might be empty, but the storage is always full. Um, one bonus with the bulk storage, when it's empty, it's empty. So we, uh, that's one of the reasons why we have one bulk storage and the rest all in, uh, in boxes. Uh, nothing gets shipped in the boxes. Uh, everything gets, uh, only the boxes will never leave the farm here. Uh, we'll always stay here and always stays indoor also. We use ventilation system um, specialized from Europe. Uh, I think they're more specialized in box storages. Uh, we got three um, room ventilation, what they call, which is just circulating of air, all climatized. And then we have one suction system where we're a little bit more in control of if there's a problem lot or frost or rot or you name it. And then uh, our uh, bulk storage is just pushing air through pipes like a normal North American style storage. Uh, you can see our harvest. We, um, we use the 4 harvester with shredder in the front and then a hopper. We use two trucks and two wagons behind tractors to haul our crop home where we uh, put them at home here in the, in the boxes. We use about four or five people grading at harvest. We try to get our crop in the boxes as clean as possible. So it would save us a little bit with shipping. We, um, right after harvest, we turn around and start shipping. Uh, we have some areas where we ship C2 very early in the season. And uh, so it's pretty much a complete turnaround for us. As soon as we're done harvest, we'll turn things around and we'll ship them out again. About 40% of our crop will, uh, will go to the U.S., pretty much from Florida to California and from California, Idaho, Washington, uh, you name it. And 6% stays in Canada. It's pretty much in every province. We ship quite a bit to the east, to New Brunswick and, and PEI. Uh, also, B.C. is a very big uh big shipping for us. Uh, most of our seed is being shipped in tote bags um, and a third will be in bulk. All the bulk will be mostly going to southern Alberta, so stays in our own province. Uh, all the other seed is pretty much all shipped in tote bags. So I think it's pretty much the best way of shipping seed, uh, especially in, in, in cooling contain containers and trucks. Um, Potatoes are never being touched the ground or the walls or anything like that. And it's a very gentle way of, uh, of shipping. 
And the winter is then always the time that I go to Holland uh, together with uh, our salesmen from uh, Edmonton Potato Growers and also the guys from HFPC, where we meet up in Holland uh, to see the new varieties. We also visit the other other breeders where we also grow some varieties for. A um, couple of big breeders over there would be uh, Solanum, uh, IPM, and um, Meyer. So our grading, um, on the left, you can kind of see our grading line. Uh, we dump our boxes in uh, what we call a Euro tub. It'll, uh, it'll take out with rollers, it'll take out the loose dirt and the small tubers. Then we have a little pre-grading area where we would take an odd rotten one out. Then it goes into an uh, even flow tub with a big conveyor right up into the air to another pre-grading table where we have rock rollers in, where one of two people will be standing to uh, get rocks out, get another rotten one out. Then it goes into the, the big shack there uh, up in the air where uh, two people are in to do a final grade. Um, the tubers all go over a rolling table. So the graders are able to see pretty much all the sides of the potatoes. And at that point, we don't want them to be very busy. They need to be really looking for uh, the last ones that are in it. And it goes into back into our box filler, which is also our tote bag filler. Uh, on the left, you can kind of see right in the light there, one of our guys hanging a bag underneath the, the tote bag box. And that's how we fill our tote bags. Uh, you see our box storage on the left and then our uh, bulk storage on the right. Uh, that we can use in the spring to uh, get loads ready before they're being shipped. And that's pretty much it for our, uh, my presentation. Uh, you can see our, our, our uh, farm online too, uh, on YouTube, on our Hookland Farms, if, uh, if you want to see some stuff in action. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jake. Great job. Okay, so now it's time for the question and answer session. And um, if you have any questions that you haven't asked to Jake or Chris, please type those in the chat box and we will get to them. So we'll go for about 15 minutes. Okay, so my first question is from, and I'm gonna apologize for butchering your name pronunciation, Saduk Safalu. And uh, he's asking, or she is uh, asking, what is the process of passing a crop during crop inspection? Can you pass a crop in the same category? Chris, do you have a, anything you want to say on that one? Um, sure. Um, I'm not sure I understand the question, but I'll, I'll take a shot of what I think you mean. Um, whenever we do two field inspections, where we're looking for certain diseases and, and, and freedom from any kind of foreign varieties and so on. So at, at each inspection there's a pass or, or not if it doesn't pass inspection it gets it can it'll it can get downclassed all the way down or even out of the certification system entirely so uh each time we go in there there's a pass fail essentially so once once uh, the results of one inspection happen there's no going going back so you can't uh fail the first inspection and then pass the second so, um, and the reason we have two inspections is that throughout the season, 
different problems occur at different times or different diseases. So we have to go in more than once. So uh, after each, each inspection, it's it's passed or failed, uh, and that's that's field inspection. Um, I would say though, as far as uh, tumor inspection goes, you can regrade. So in in that circumstance, you can uh, if if it didn't pass inspection, you could regrade, and as long as you meet the tolerances, uh, you can get uh, get certification. So I, I hope that answers the question. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Jake, do you, have you had any issues yourself in the past when it's come to uh, your getting your tests done when they come out to check your fields, just out of curiosity? <laughs> no, we we haven't really any had any issues. Um, it, it's yeah, uh, luckily I guess really uh, our disease levels here are so low, so it it, it is very. Um, very tricky in that sense that um, sometimes you even question yourself a little bit if you find something what it really is because uh, because we really don't see it very often. So we do use small little test kits if there's anything, but we've never had really any issues that uh, stuff being downgraded because of because of diseases necessarily. Uh, I mean, black light can be uh, an issue sometimes. Um, there's lots of different stories on black leg i would say black leg to me can be totally different and uh, the one year you'll see it the next year you won't it's uh it's a very very environmental disease and that can be a tr little bit tricky here in alberta because of our climate really but uh i've never had luckily the issue of uh, stuff being downgraded that's good Okay, I have a question from Deb Hart for Chris. When a domestic traceback takes place, how does CFIA track where an infected seedlot was shipped from? Um, whenever the grower um, applies for seed certification, whenever they their application, every uh, they have to declare everything that they've planted on their farm, and they have to list every certification number for each seed source. So that, that certification number will tell us every lot that they planted on their farm. And that's how we, if there's an investigation, let's say there's a disease outbreak on that farm, we would look at all of the seed on that farm and where they got seed to try and figure out where the disease came from. So we would look, uh, we would look at the certification number because every, Every lot every, on the farm needs to have a certification number that we can trace back. Thanks, Chris. Okay, this question is for Jake. It's from Mark Van Ostrom. Did you increase seed spacing when you switched to bed planting? Uh, no, we did not, uh, Mark. We're actually planting at, at uh, about seven inch spacing. Um, I didn't increase that in the sense that um, I wanted to keep my seed smaller. So I, I keep the population up quite high. We do see that we're needing a little bit longer time. So usually when we plant our mini tubers beginning of June, uh, we were able to harvest those usually second week of September. That is pushed back to a third to sometimes fourth week of September. So I'm trying to plant them a little bit earlier now, uh, if the weather permits. Uh, not like this year, it was still freezing in the middle of uh, in the middle of uh, May. So uh, preferably, I would like to plant them in the middle of May and have them again harvested before the middle of September. 
Thank you. And here's another question from Sadiq, and this one's for you again there, Jake. Um, he's asking, what is your average sealed yield per hectare? And of course, I know we use um, per acre mainly here in North America. So answer whichever one you feel like there, Jake. <laughs> well, I just got, I saw the question. So I, I calculated that quick for you. Um, so it, it really varies here in, in Alberta. Um, our average on the farm is anywhere between 40 and 50 ton per hectare. Um, it's um, we can get some serious weather here. So we can either get really, really dry and then it'll drop down to 40. Uh, or a hill storm could really bring us down to 40. But uh, so I would say on average, we would hit about 45 ton per hectare. Thank you. And thanks for doing that calculation. I really appreciate it. And I have another question for you from Anne McPhail. She's asking, do you use any seed from Canadian breeders? And what are you looking for when you select the seed you're going to plant? Um, we do. Uh, now with Edmonton Potato Rose, we, we are looking at that very closely. They have a few varieties in our program now that are from uh, North American breeders. I do have some also, uh, a little bit from, uh, from PVMI. Um, what are we looking for? I, I, I'm looking for a lot for if it's a table potato, uh, of course, shape, yield, color uh, is a big deal, but resistances, uh, which I think for me becomes very important for the future, um, especially I think nematodes. I think the North American breeding is not really focused on that too much, but I think it's going to come. And it might be five years, might be 10 years, might be 20 years, I don't know. But I think it's going to be something in certain areas where it could be very important uh, for the future. Thank you. And I have another question from Mark Van Ostrom for you there, Jake. He's asking if you have any experience with jilbrick. Ugh, I have, I'm not going to pronounce Yes, that word. <laughs> um, yeah, Mark, I'm actually doing a little bit of experiences with uh, jubilic acid. Not in the mini-tuber side of things, but uh, I have a few varieties that are setting very poorly, and uh, we've been trying with that. Um, I have, I'm not sure on it yet. I do what we've seen in, in some of the tests that we did with it. We did get a huge increase in set, absolutely. Um, but for roguing, it's a disaster. Uh, the plants look very sick. And at first I was kind of shocked. I thought I killed them, but uh, they, um, that becomes a little bit tricky. And I know the, the amount of jubilic acid can, can vary that way too, but we are testing a little bit with that, but don't want to do it too much. Thank you. And now I have a question from Manon Jilbin, and I'm sorry if I mispronounce your name. Um, how do you manage your fertilizer program there, Jake? We use an agronomist that helps us to uh, to look at our, our, our crops. Can be also tricky here because of dry land, but uh, he's done an uh, amazing job for us to manage our varieties um, because every variety is differently. So I'm just done top dressing, for instance, yesterday with some of the varieties, I will uh, almost need double the nitrogen than some of the other varieties. So that is a little bit tricky by us to do that with so many lots and so many different plots, but uh, we are set up to do it separately per variety. 
Thank you, Jake, and thanks, Chris. Okay, well, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank our speakers once again, Christopher and Jake. You guys did a great job. And also, once again, I would love to thank our sponsors, BASF and McCain, for making this webinar possible. And a big thank you goes out to everyone for participating. I hope you have found this information valuable. Again, a recording of this webinar will be made available on spudsmart.com shortly. And thanks again, and we hope you have a wonderful day.